Well, friends, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, Acts chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Acts chapter 11, we'll begin in verse 1, and we will go all the way through verse 18 of Acts chapter 11. As you turn there, imagine with me two contrasting scenes. The first scene is around the throne of Jesus. The second scene is going to be around the table of Peter. In the first scene, again, which comes right out of Revelation chapter Chapter 7, we see people from every nation, every tribe, every language gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ. Listen to how the Apostle John records the scene in Revelation chapter 7. He says, Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Can you see it? That's the scene that I want you to see. Sam just prayed that we would see it. We just sang about it. John writes about it in Revelation chapter 7. All of the nations gathered around the throne of Jesus. And you see, John's making this point that it's all the nations. They're all different. They come from different backgrounds. They look different. They sound different. They have different um, uh, 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 dialects or um, like accents, right? You've got the, 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 the southern Bubba, so to speak, and the northern Yankee. They're both gathered around the throne. You've got from all the tribes, some of them are dressed differently because cultures dress differently. You've got one guy who comes from a, a, a background where to have a really thick unibrow is a sign of great strength. And so there he is gathered around the throne of Jesus and you've got this, this, this woman right next to him who, who has, her eyebrows are perfectly plucked, right? They're coming from different nations. They sound different, they look different, they stand different, they posture themselves differently, but they're all gathered around the throne of Jesus. And they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. In the contrasting second scene, I want to take you to Galatians chapter 2. This is not the throne of Jesus. This is the table of Peter. In contrast to the unifying scene of Revelation chapter 7 and Galatians chapter 2, we find the apostle Peter carefully selecting who he would sit and eat with based on who was watching. It was a moment of instinctive, sinful prejudice. And the apostle Paul confronted Peter about this moment. See, Peter was eating. Peter came from a Jewish background, and and it was was, um, not right for a Jew to sit down at a table with a Gentile. But Peter understood that in Christ there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, and so he would sit down with some Gentile believers. But when Jewish believers were watching, he would withdraw from the table. Listen to how Paul records the event, Galatians chapter 2. He says, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that is from Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, 
If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Do you see the contrasting scenes? Revelation chapter 7, everybody gathered shoulder to shoulder around the throne of Jesus. Galatians chapter 2, Peter saying, oh, I'll sit with you as long as nobody's watching. It is hypocritical for Peter to believe that he would gather with people around the throne but be unwilling to gather with them around a table. And for us, it is hypocritical to believe that we will gather with someone around the throne of Jesus but be unwilling to gather with them around a table. Now, that's a sweeping statement. And like most sweeping statements, there are exceptions. And I don't think that we're meant to abandon discernment or discretion or that we must feel the same towards all Christians. I don't think we're meant to abandon our distinctives. But I do think we are meant to repent of prejudice. The Apostle Peter had a hard time overcoming personal prejudice. You might be tempted to think, well, I don't. But let us remember that the characters in the Bible are often not models for morality. They are mirrors for identity. We are far more like Peter in his worst moments than we would care to admit. John chapter, uh, John Stott, excuse me, uh, comments on Acts chapter 11 that it took four distinct hammer blows for God to break Peter of his prejudice. This principle is so important that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, records it three times in two chapters. This is the only place in the Bible that I know of where the same event is recorded word for word, back to back, in two uh, con uh, consecutive chapters. There's no other place in the Bible where an event is reiterated as much as this event is reiterated. We need to ask why. It's an interesting question. Scholars tell us that on an average scroll, so when Luke wrote the book of Acts, he would have written it on a scroll, not a book like we have a book. He would have written it on a scroll. On an average scroll, you could fit between 28 and 30 chapters of material. It's an average that scholars give us. That's exactly how long the book of Acts is. So we've got to ask the question, why would Luke, given a limited amount of space, repeat this story? We're left to imagine what stories he left out, what stories he didn't tell us about, how the Lord Jesus through the, the early church was moving. But he wanted to repeat this, not once, not twice, but three times. Perhaps it's because Theophilus, the man to whom he wrote the book of Acts, was prone to prejudice. Luke might have been saying, Theophilus, you need to let go of some of your prejudice if you're going to see the Lord Jesus move through you. Perhaps it was because Theophilus was pained by prejudice. Theophilus may have suffered the, uh, 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 an ethnic prejudice on his own account. But I would contend that it is more likely because Luke wanted Theophilus to praise the God who shows no prejudice, who shows no partiality. You see, God does not need to show ethnic or racial prejudice or partiality because he has set his son, Jesus Christ, as Lord of all. He has given him the crown above all crowns. He has placed the scepter in his hand. He has given him the rights to the throne. Jesus is Lord of all. Therefore, we need not show any partiality or ethnic prejudice. And when we do, we're betraying that declaration that Christ is Lord of all. 
The Jewish community in which the gospel first spread faced a very real temptation to think that the gospel was meant to be good news for them and people who acted like them. And if you and I think that we're beyond such a temptation, we're fooling ourselves. When you hear a story being told, you assume that the hero of the story looks like you. We all do, but not so in Christianity. We do well to remember that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and that every nation and people group is around the throne. So we are meant to say with Peter, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. In just a, a, a matter of weeks, 5,000 students are going to descend on Christopher Newport University. And we're praying that the Lord would use our church to reach them. And you can imagine that, that they're coming from 5,000 different personalities, 5,000 different backgrounds. Within a 10-minute drive of where you're sitting right now, there are 55,000 people. That's a lot of people with a lot of personalities and a lot of preferences and a lot of ways of doing things, right? We've, we've, we've experienced that, but we've got to realize if, if the Lord is going to use us to reach them, we have to get over thinking that our way is the right way and open up to uh, get rid of our prejudice and see, remember that Christ is Lord of all. So behind Acts chapter 11 is this declaration, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And Acts chapter 11 is an invitation not only to believe that, but to live in light of it. So let's turn our attention to Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, uh, we are not going to do a deep dive into circumcision and how they know and questions like that. All right. We're just not going there. I'll, I'll recommend some commentaries if you want to go there. But we do need to understand who the circumcision party is and why they criticized Peter. Why were they so mad? One commentator explains these sensitive Jewish Christians are not organized, but react out of an instinctive concern for the law and the covenant. So the circumcision party was not an official party. You didn't sign up for it. You didn't register for it so that you could vote in the primary. You, you, this was not an organized group. This was a, a rather a, a group of, of Jewish Christians who were sensitive and had an instinctive concern for the law and the covenant. In their view, Peter should have been assured that the Gentiles were clean before associating with them. How much contact Jews could have with Gentiles was debated. And scrupulous Jews were concerned about such issues. Listen to how one pastor and scholar explains the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Milk that was drawn out of a cow by Gentile hands was not allowed to be consumed by Jews. So you had to make sure you checked on who provided your milk. Bread and oil prepared by a Gentile could be sold to a stranger, but could never be used by a Jew. No Jew would eat with a Gentile at all. In fact, if a Gentile was invited to a Jewish house, you couldn't leave him in the room lest he would defile all of the food in the room. 
If cooking utensils were brought from a Gentile, they had to be purified by fire and water. Any article that was in the hands of a Gentile at any time was considered unclean by Jews. If you had a a weaving shuttle, and that weaving shuttle was made out of wood that was grown in a grove where Gentiles worshiped false gods, you had to burn the shuttle. Not only that, you had to burn every piece of cloth that ever produced on it and burn it too. That's the level of distinction between Jew and Gentile. So the fact that Peter, a Jew, would eat with Gentiles was no small deal. And you can see why the circumcision party said, whoa, 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 whoa. Were they clean? I mean, did you use their utensils? Did you eat at a table with them? Did you, where'd you get your clothes? Right? All of a sudden, it raises all of these other questions. This pastor continues, now the Gentiles retaliated. So this isn't just a Jew being concerned for the Gentiles. The Gentiles retaliated. They had their own thing going too. The Jews were a scorn to them. They were a constant theater of laughter for them. The circumcision, the Sabbath day rest, the worship of an invisible God, the abstinence from certain foods and dietary laws and all of the things the Jews went through. That was a mockery. It was a point of mockery for the Gentile. So for centuries, they had been butting heads. And all of a sudden, Christ came along and and said, now I'm going to take the Jew and the Gentile and I'm going to wait, make one new man. And in theory, it was great. And in theology, it was great. And by his power, he could do it. But it was a tough thing for the Jew to swallow and to practically make it happen. And Peter, even though he got a lot going in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, had a number of, uh, of relapses in his life. So it's not like Peter was a quick learner. Even Galatians chapter 2, he's still dealing with this. And so the, that, that's what Peter's entering into in this moment as he walks into Jerusalem. He had had a great ministry among the Gentiles. The word had gotten out as it often does. They say that the, uh, a lie can travel around the world twice while the truth is tying up its shoes. And so the, world, the word got out. Jerusalem's mad. Peter walks in and they're going to uh, call for a reckoning moment. They're going to hold Peter to task. And so they criticize him. James Edwards comments this way. They criticized him for an action that seemed to have more significance for them than the salvation of these Gentiles. I just want to stop there for a moment and let that sink in. They were criticizing Peter for an action that had more significance for them than the salvation of these Gentiles. How likely are you and I, how quick are you and I to criticize somebody over something that in reality is more pressing on us than their salvation? How quick are we to criticize political differences and say, okay, good, great, they're saved, but what really makes me angry is that's what was happening here. We want the nations to be glad, not because they act like us, but because they know Christ. So let's turn our attention to this passage. And I, I want us to, to see five different steps or ways or, or, or principles as we see God reiterate this call that God shows no partiality. 
First of all, see God's display in verses five through six. See God's display in verses five through six. I was in the city of Joppa praying, Peter recalls, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. So Peter is giving a defense, and he says, first of all, I had a vision. God showed me a vision, an illustration. God showed Peter that he showed no partiality between Jew and Gentile. It was a sheet being let down from heaven by four corners. The number four in much of scripture communicates totality, the whole thing. So the authors often will refer to the four corners of the earth. That's not because the earth is a square. They were not flat earthers, right? It's because they're communicating totality, the whole thing, all four corners, every corner of the earth. In the same way, the four corners of this sheet. And on this sheet are animals of various kinds. And we learn that the animals were clean and unclean, according to Jewish tradition. This is a reference back to Leviticus 11, in which God laid out dietary restrictions for his people. And you might wonder why. Why did God care what they ate and what they didn't? It was to keep them distinct from the Gentiles, that the nations might know that they belonged to God. So do you see it? Do you see this image? Do you see God's display? It's an illustration, an object lesson that the, the whole earth belongs to him, that we should not call anything common or unclean which God has called common. We're meant not only to see the, the sheep, but the church, the global universal church and see the throne of Christ himself in heaven and see the multitude around it. We're meant to ask, will you be there? Friends, trust Christ. You're not gonna go to heaven because of your ethnic background or your ethnic makeup. You'll go to heaven because you belong to Christ. Secondly, we're meant to hear God's command. Hear God's command. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. What is God doing? One pastor explains that he is abolishing the Old Testament Jewish dietary laws. Why? because they were designed to separate the Jew from the Gentile, and now through the body of Christ, he's uniting them. Therefore, this one social line barrier had to be removed for them to come together. They had to learn to be able to socialize around the tables together because they were now one. And in the, the early years of the church, this was a problem that kept popping up. The divine words that interpret the vision, they have profound implications for us. We're meant to hear God's command. They have divine, uh, profound implications for the doctrine of the church, for a Christian perception on the law of Moses. Holiness in terms of ritual cleanness is now replaced by cleansing and sanctification through faith in Christ. Just like uh, Zach pointed out earlier, it's by grace we have been saved. So do you hear it? Do you hear the voice from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common? 
Hear the voice of Christ. Go and make disciples of all nations. Hear the voice of the multitude around the throne proclaiming the glory of Christ and that salvation belongs to the Lamb. Now, you might think, well, Jeff, I I don't hear the voice of God the way Peter did. Well, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. You don't need to hear God command you not to call another person unclean because you have Acts chapter 10, you have Acts chapter 11, you have Matthew 28, you have Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 3, you have Galatians chapter 2, you have Revelation chapter 7, you have a sure and certain word in your Bible. In fact, Peter would say years later, He said, I saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. I heard the voice of God say, this is my beloved son. And he said, you know what, Christian? You have something better in your Bible. You have a more sure and certain word in your Bible. So don't listen for an audible voice. Open up your Bible. Thirdly, we should obey the Spirit's prompting. Behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. So Peter recalls and he explains, the Spirit told me to go with them. Now, that line of thinking has led a lot of people to do a lot of things, and many of them were certainly not the Spirit of God. If you think the Spirit of God is leading you, but you aren't submitting to the Word of God, you better check which Spirit it is. Peter confirms the prompting with these six brothers. If you think the spirit is leading you, confirm it through spiritually mature brothers and sisters. So what's he doing? He's saying, okay, God didn't just show me that he shows no partiality. And he didn't just tell me that he shows no partiality. The Holy Spirit of God prompted me to live in such a way that that displays that God shows no partiality. You may or may not experience a prompting like Peter did. But again, you have a more sure and certain word. When it comes to making disciples of all nations, your Bible ought to be more compelling to you than Peter's perception of the Spirit's prompting. You ought to be more compelled, not less, than Peter himself. Because you have your Bible, you ought to be more compelled to make disciples of all nations. Fourthly, we preach the saving work of Christ. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So the point here is not to break down cultural barriers for progress sake or diversity sake. The point was the glory of Christ through the salvation of sinners. That's what the book of Acts is all about. How precious is the glory of Christ through the salvation of sinners to you? Is it worth being criticized over? That's what's happening here. Or think of the four friends in Mark chapter two who carried the paralytic to Jesus and finding a crowd, they cut a hole in the roof of the house in order to get him to Jesus. Are you that kind of friend? Think of the great apostle Paul who coming from a Jewish background had cast off all his former reasons for boasting in order that he could cling to Christ alone. Paul said, you know what? They're going to consider me a fool. They're going to consider my gospel foolish. I will be mocked, but I'm okay with that because through the gospel, many will be saved. 
God gave Cornelius a dream. Go get Peter and he will tell you how to be saved. There are men and women around the world and throughout your neighborhoods right now who are far from God. And some of them are wondering how to be saved. You've got the gospel. You've got the keys to set them free. Will you get the gospel to them? Again, 5,000 students getting ready to move into CNU. We're going to relaunch a ministry called Adopt a Captain in which local CNU students can be adopted by a local family, that's you, and they can be cared for. They can find a home away from home, a safe place off campus. They can be encouraged. They can get a home cooked or at least a home served meal, maybe a place to do laundry without quarters every once in a while. Right? But the, the goal of all of that is not merely that they would be comforted, but that they would be pointed to Christ. My prayer is that God would use those relationships to see some students find salvation in Christ. It's amazing to me as I look back over the history of Catalyst Church, that program, Adopt the Captain, has been used by God to disciple students as they thought about marriage. And there have been CNU students who called their adopting families and said, I'm thinking about getting engaged. Can you help me think well through this? Or I'm thinking about taking a job. Can you help me think, think well through this? There have been relationships formed that I didn't even know about until years later where uh, 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 captains invited their adopting families to their weddings. And again, I would only find out about it years later. God uses this program. So I hope you'll sign up for it, use that connection card. But again, the point is salvation in Christ, that God would use us to get them to Christ. Fifthly and finally, we celebrate God's work. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Finally, Peter and eventually his critics celebrate God's work. The Holy Spirit falls. Peter recalls Jesus' words, and he summarizes with this conclusion. If God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And that pretty much sealed the deal. That ended the argument. Those who were previously outright critics became silent. And then they moved from silence to glorifying God for the work of his salvation among the Gentiles. So you might ask the question, where am I on that scale? Am I critical of other people who are reaching other people for Jesus? I don't know about you, but I get real critical real quick. And then I have to stop and remind myself, I like their way of doing it better than my way of not doing it, right? So I'm not going to criticize them for reaching the Gentiles while I'm sitting idly by. No, no, so are, are you criticizing? Are you critical? Are you silent? Or are you glorifying God for his work among the Gentiles? F.F. Bruce summarizes, their criticism ceased and their praise began. Are you celebrating God's work of salvation among people? Are you pursuing it? The point of Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 is not merely for you to say, truly I know that God shows no partiality. The point is that you would leverage your life to see the nations find life in Christ. It's not that you would say, okay, I won't call anyone unclean, but so spend your life that everyone would be reached for Christ. 
I want to encourage you with some news that, that you probably would not have heard about. It was buried deep in the, uh, in the depths of Twitter, which can often be a dangerous place to go. But every once in a while, you find an encouraging gem. On July 28th, one of our Southern Baptist missionaries tweeted this, fellow Southern Baptists, because of your commitment to pray, give, and go, 49 children, mostly Muslim, participated in a vacation Bible school this week in Birmingham, England. During the vacation Bible school, IMB International Missionary uh, Board missionaries were able to share the hope and love of Jesus. Thank you. You see, as, as Southern Baptists, one of the things we do really well is missions. We don't do it perfectly, but we have missionaries all over the world so that anytime you turn on the news, and you see a location that you've never been to or never heard of, you can know that you have a missionary within reach of them, a missionary going after them. And we're praying that God would use our efforts, efforts to grant what Peter calls repentance unto life. Repentance unto life. That is that we would turn from our sin and turn to Christ, trusting him for salvation and find life in him. So let me just ask, have you found life in Christ this morning? Are you trusting him for your salvation and nothing else? Not your ethnic background, not your performance of good deeds, but Christ and Christ alone. As we sang at the beginning of the service, we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. That is our only plea of heaven. And in Christ, we are made righteous. I want to invite you to grab the uh, communion elements that are in the pew in front of you.